I'm author and critic David Agronoff. I'm a horror and science fiction author, critic, and researcher. In this podcast, I wanted to provide in-depth interviews and panel discussions with everyone from New York Times bestselling authors to researchers, musicians, and anyone I find interesting. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. We have a very special episode for you today. We are up in the, I think this is going to be episode 106. I, you know, I always say that, but then I move numbers around. So I don't know why I even mentioned the numbers, but um, David James Keaton is a uh, guest I have uh, flirted with a, a couple times because I've wanted him on before for panels and things and just never got around to it. But I'm really excited to have him here to talk about his new book, Head Cleaner, which we'll get to in a minute. I got to make a shameless plug for my most recent book, Nightmare City, co-written with Anthony Trevino, who is- I know big, that guy. Yeah, I know him. <laughs> yeah, Anthony's a big uh, David James Keaton fan. The first uh, David James- Keaton book I ever read, The Last Projector, was handed to me by Anthony. So um, you can't you can't ask for that kind of that's that's some serious some serious promo there. He's carrying around copies of it. Well, I don't know if he was carrying around, but I just think he wanted me to read it uh, very badly. But yeah, he, that was he Anthony, helped, and he, he helped me put a mannequin in a trunk once. So we're like we're like this after that, <laughs> right? And we wrote a whole fucking book together that took four years. So we're okay. like. We're like that, but trying to be like this, you know? So, uh, but anyway, shout out to Anthony, um, who may or may not listen to this episode, but uh, um, our book Nightmare City is out there, and we pitched it as The Wire if Clive Barker and Philip K. Dick were on the writing staff, so. Okay, um, all right. Well, wait, which which season of The Wire? They're all drastically different. Um, I'm going to go season one, maybe. Okay. All right. But, you know, right. I, it's not a hard pitch. You know, it's like we're going for feel here. Well, if you would have said season two, uh, yeah. the bottom bottom would have dropped out because that's the season no one likes. The, the season at the docks. Right. I actually don't mind season two. It's I think okay. all, I think I mean, comparatively, season. it's really good. But the other ones were so good. You know, I'm not going to go as far as saying I like true detective season two, but, you know, <laughs> The Wire season two, I don't think is that bad. Season three, season three made season two look like season one. Well, of True Detective? Yes. I actually don't mind season three, but, you know, we're not here to talk about True Detective. We're not? Fuck. Yeah, but at least <laughs> season two and season three didn't, like, carbon copy dialogue out of eight of Thomas Ligotti books. That's true. So but that. They also, they ripped off somebody else in two, didn't they? It was... Uh... Uh, somebody had the Birdman uh, uh, sequence. Somebody was telling me about it that that he took from. I don't want to say it's not Elmore Leonard. Some other hard-boiled detective. Hold on a second. Oh, hey, we got some coffee. Nice. Oh, hey, thanks. Well, yeah. welcome to the coffee. Look at this. I'm going to be talking a mile a minute now. All right. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, David, because one of the things that I know about you uh, before we get into this book is that 
And I said this in my my review, and I know you haven't read my review yet, but I kind of know you as a more than an author. I know you as somebody who's like making hilarious media criticisms from time to time or ones that I follow, even if I don't agree with them all the time. And that comes out in this book a little bit, too, um, which we'll get to because we're going to get into nitty gritty eventually. There's going to be a spoiler warning at some point. But until then, people can follow along in, in our conversation. But so that's kind of like my first thing that I think of when I think of you is that if I see one of your posts on some, on some like show or something, I always stop scrolling to see what you've got to say. <laughs> but here's the thing. Well, it's funny, too, because like um, I know some people only like to read the opinions of people they agree with. Right. Yeah. And. Um, and, and that's not me. I like sometimes like to read when somebody like just totally doesn't agree with me. And I can't remember there was there was one time you made a comment on something that I completely disagreed with, but I was like, but still well said. And <laughs> and so that's why I always read your stuff. But that's besides the point. How did well, you honestly to let me just stick yeah. up for let me stick up for myself for a second. When I'm disagreeing with maybe some sort of uh if it's, it seems like a really good piece of media and I, and I come off like a contrarian, the only, the person I'm arguing with is myself because I almost always am ripping on things that I really enjoy. If it's something right. that, if it's something that's terrible, I, I rarely even talk about it, but if it's something that I've seen a million times, like recently I watched uh, the prestige for probably the sixth or seventh time my sister was in town and it's just so fun to tear it to shreds. I love that movie, but I can't help but just sort of immerse myself in like nitpicking it. It's like, I think it's fun. And then I find that a lot of people don't think that's fun at all. That a lot of people think, oh, you hate everything. Um, Not true. In fact, that this book was a chance to make that crossover with the voice, the media voice, like the media saturated social media voice. It finally gave it a place to run amok. Um, more so than the other books and uh, some people like my wife was saying that it it actually uh, finally makes sense like the the rants finally had a place where they made more sense than some books I got they get kind of off the rails but this one this one seems like it it is sort of those guys at the video store and you you've been talking on on Facebook you were talking about a, a video store past of your own I think yeah or at least yeah, recently in- when we were talking about defcon 4 can you can you can imagine or defcon 5 you can imagine what book i was reading that inspired me to think about that <laughs> um but yeah no and, and and we'll talk about video stores in a little bit because i think it's a curious thing and you know and, and personally and you know living in portland i like held on, i was using movie madness you know right up oh, to wow. the end of li- living in portland and when we left in 2014, I was still using movie madness on a regular basis. Right. Mm. And, um, you know, it's funny because I heard recently that they transitioned because they still have movie madness there and they transitioned into building a screening room because there's a lot of people that just don't have machines anymore to watch the things, but now go there and rent (laughs) the screening room and get a movie that you want to watch that's only there and get the wow. screen. I love this the seedy nature of that. Like yeah. it sounds sort of like those those Times Square 
porno stops, except people are just watching a totally normal movie and the only cleanup required is, is popcorn. But yeah, that's what? like, those, do you remember there was a minute when movie people, there were like single viewing stations. I don't know if those were overseas, but you would watch, they wanted to get so many, when movies were huge, they wanted to play so many that right. instead of putting a lot of people in an auditorium, they did a reverse where it was like three or four people in front of a monitor. And so it was, they reduced the number of people per spot, but the number of screens was multiplied and it didn't really catch on unless this is like a dream I had, but I'm pretty sure that for a moment they, they tried this when movies were in their heyday in the theaters. So it's interesting that now that rentals, you're saying that so many people want to watch this old media, but don't have the devices yeah so you don't even go home anymore you just stay there and watch it right now a lot of people in portland still have the devices so they're still able to do it but uh mike clark the founder of movie madness is 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 the um is kind of like the uh um the bigfoot of this podcast because i i had on the head programmer from the hollywood theater in portland and my and he kept saying you got to have mike clark on the owner of movie madness because he has amazing stories about because he worked in the film industry before he opened the video store and mm. so the idea was to have him on to come talk about running his video store and tell his movie stories and i set up a date to have him on the podcast and he is terrible with technology and getting him on zoom was like next to impossible and we spent 35 minutes with his nephew trying to get his zoom to work <laughs> and the whole time he's telling these great stories and then he was like, fuck it, this isn't working. He was like, thanks for the offer. And then he like, he hung up on me. Wow. And I never got the chance to have him on the podcast. And so uh, now, <laughs> anytime anyone mentions Movie Madness, and I have a, a shirt for Movie Madness, when I wear the shirt, I just laugh about that 35 minutes I spent with him and his nephew trying to figure out Zoom. But it never worked, but that's okay. You know, but video yeah. stores are are a weird kind of thing. And we'll come back to that. But I do want to get into a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm feeling super tangenty today. So, like, bear with me. Suits, suits the material. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, so how did you get into writing and um, genre fiction or just writing in general? Because I know your work isn't entirely genre, but, yeah, you know. It's, it's definitely a hybrid um, I guess uh, the first couple stories I wrote, though, were heavily genre stories. It was um, junior high stuff. Uh, we had a school newspaper. So I wrote a couple stories for our school newspaper, and they were, um, they, I had seen Alien <laughs> right around that time was the first time I'd seen the first Alien movie. So everything I was writing involves something coming out of a body in some way. <laughs> so I've got a body horror of some kind. Yeah. yeah. But real basic stuff, like one of them was, I lived near uh, Davis Bessie's nuclear power plant in uh, in Ohio. So there was a lot of talk of, you know, mutation, radiation and stuff. And there was beaches right there. So the first story I wrote was, uh, I think it was just called On the Beach. I didn't realize there was already a movie called On the Beach about nuclear fallout. And it was somebody steps on a sand crab, but it's a special crab. So it injects eggs into their foot. And then later they're foot explodes into sand crabs and they go everywhere. And then about two years later, I wrote one called Spider Bites. 
which was um, somebody uh, is goes to a pet store, but it's a special pet store, and they step on a special spider and it injects something into their foot, and then years or months later, spiders burst out of their chest. Um, so you see that a pattern had emerged pretty quickly of just things bursting out of things. So that was probably the first things I wrote. Um, some of them were in school newspaper you know multiple photocopies being passed around kind of thing um and then in undergrad uh, i got a uh bfa at bowling green in ohio bowling green state university in ohio and wrote a lot of it was sort of a memoir slash magic realism stuff not a lot of genre stuff but then when i got to the U university of pittsburgh and uh, I started working with Chuck Kinder, uh, whose claim to fame with most people is that the movie Wonder Boys is based on him. Um, Michael Chabon wrote that about him. Mm -hmm. So he, uh, weirdly enough, his stuff was so out there and it was also me memoir kind of magic realism that he kind of pushed me further and further into more outlandish material and it was kind of a resistance to the mfa writing that i was reading in the workshops which was all very very literary right so now is university of Pitt, is that that's Pitt, right yep or yeah okay that's my father's oh awesome. grad school um, alma mater and so he knows the the cathedral of learning the hogwarts looking cathedral of learning yeah. On yeah, my, yeah. my father has a, a lifelong his greatest academic love as an academic was his time at Pitt. Oh, okay. So for, for many, you know, we, we uh, had, um, and he adopted all the Pittsburgh sports teams when he was there. <laughs> oh, so, the terrible towel and all that stuff. Oh yeah. He was big Steelers pirates, the whole deal. And uh, so, um, and I, it's weird because I hoop with a lot of guys from Pittsburgh here and they're like, you know a lot about Pittsburgh. And I'm like, and never spent much time there. It's just my dad, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's yes. cool. You went to Pitt. I didn't know about the the guy that inspired Wonder Boys. That's cool. Because I, I I love the novel and the movie. Oh, okay. Um, so that's well, pretty they, cool. I mean, they yeah. kind of screw some stuff up, but he's uh, in real life. He's just, he had a cane and he walked and he had some trouble getting around from his, you know, years of hard partying, basically. But in the movie, they insert a dog attack to like sort of explain why he stumbles around. It, it's there's these weird. Um, it, it's like they want the flavor of him. He and he, he absolutely would probably walk around in a giant pink bathrobe and, you know, but and in class, right. he was sort of similar, uh, both dismissive, but very intently into certain people's work. Uh, you know, it's kind of an old school MFA workshop where probably wouldn't be um wouldn't be embraced some of his some of his methods but uh <laughs> right the, the version of him they came up with for the movie is fascinating because you can see how why some choices were made and you can see some of the stuff that he absolutely would say if you're a big fan of the book and the movie the sequences where him and his and people around him would start making up stories about people that they're looking at you remember those moments mm. like when he's in the bar and he says okay this guy was a former jockey uh, and there was they assassinated a horse and just that kind of stuff is absolutely Chuck. That's the kind of thing that he um, he would he would have his imagination was always flying and he was always also be he was a heavy weed smoker. So that is also in there as well.
Hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm going to have to see that again because I, I definitely yeah. love that movie. I just haven't seen it in a long time. Well, if you want to read the book around the time the movie came out, because a good a good companion piece is uh, Honeymooners, is the novel that he was writing that in the movie gets blown away. Um, that's the novel that he was writing when um, when he uh, couldn't finish it and it got to be thousands of pages and. Uh, Michael Chabon famously saw the manuscript and that it was into the 2000 some pages and uh, he cut it down to I think 270 pages I'm not sure what the final product is so if you read Honeymooners that's the book he's working on but if you want a more Wonder Boys Chuck Kinder type book you should read the next one which is um, The Last Mountain Dancer and that one's um, a very sprawling it's exactly the kind of sprawling book that you'd imagine the character of Grady Tripp would write, uh, hmm. except with a little more twang to it. But yeah, Pittsburgh, um, that's where that's where I started r really writing a lot and um, started sending out some short stories. Um, yeah, and uh, kind of as a side note, while, while I was there, they were filming The Dark Knight Rises. So, yeah. it, was, so it, was, it was kind of an interesting time. There was fake snow everywhere. Those camouflage... Uh, little tank Hummer looking deals from the movie were kind of tooling around our streets. So, it, uh, you know, you got this sort of literary uh, castle and then you've got Batman being filmed out the window. So it, I don't know, it was kind of conducive to the, the hybrid thoughts I was having, which is it's not quite horror. It's not quite science fiction. It's kind of crimey, not quite literary. Um and that might hurt it, finding audiences that it's tougher to pin down. This <laughs> new one is probably the closest to a straight genre piece, but it's still straddling it. You know, it's still straddling mm -hmm. the line a little bit. Well, and it's funny because I know I I pointed this out in my review, which is that it may be funny that with two short story collections and several novels out that, you know, I, I spent a little bit of time in my review talking about your Facebook posts about media, but <laughs> they 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 related to the movie or to the book to me in a way because, um, like you said, this is this is a chance where you got to to funnel a lot of those, a lot of right. those. And honestly, I've always done that. You're, the yeah. Facebook posts are kind of rehearsals for what some characters are saying sometimes. Like it's there's there's definitely a bleed through of what you're seeing on Facebook is probably rough draft material anyway. I mean, there's a reason why some posts can be a brick of text. It's and why people's responses that I know are be like, who are you talking to? Who are you yelling at? Like, oh, I, right. I, that was just, that was just some sort of typing I was doing. So, yeah. Yeah. And so um, of your earlier work, um, now I'm going to focus on Head Cleaner because this is the one that you're promoting. It's the one I just read. But of your earlier work, is there anything that you really want to point people to or something that you think might be a good companion to this? Because it seems like The Last Projector yeah. is a I companion mean, piece in the in, in the thematics of like dying um, transmission of media, I guess. Is what yeah. I, yeah. I think that one's the, if it was one of those, the Amazon page, if you like this, try this. I would probably say the last projector. If you're really into genre stuff, I I did have a zombie collection, which was sort of anti-zombie, but not really. Um, stealing propeller hats from the dead. 
I would say that would might be a good companion, although probably the closest in tone to it is that uh, she was found in a guitar case. Mm-hmm. Now, I got to ask about if... propeller hats. Because sure. for dickheads, I just interviewed Walter Nelson, the son of Ray Nelson, who claims to have invented the propeller hat. And I don't know if you have <laughs> like a strong feeling on that since you had propeller hat in the title. But yeah. Ray Nelson claims that he invented the propeller hat for science fiction to wear to a science fiction convention in the late 40s. Okay. Thus, a... thus <laughs> Do I we live money? and the propeller hat have the same creator. Right. Because huh. Ray Nelson wrote the story wrote that the, they live was based on. The what is it like 12 o'clock in the morning? What's that story? Eight o'clock in the morning. Yes. Eight o'clock in the morning. Yes. Okay. So interesting. So he's inventing a lot of things that dark sunglasses propeller hats well um, you know in the book sunglasses aren't the reason why people start seeing the aliens in the story right. it's because they go to a hip the guy goes to a hypnotist right tells him to wake up it's very it's very office space like well he, that's <laughs> also very phil k dick but they were best friends in the 60s so yeah you know yeah but, but um but anyways, just because you had propeller hat in the title, yeah. like as soon as I saw that, I was like, you know, I just interviewed Walter Nelson. Ray Nelson just passed away last like a month or two ago oh. at 91. And so I was interviewed, I interviewed his son, which by the way, I found out that Phil Philip K. Dick used to babysit him. And Ooh. what what an experience that would be is to yeah. like that your parents thought Phil Dick was the person they should leave you with. <laughs> but yeah. whatever, you know. Um but yeah, Ray Nelson invented the propeller hat, allegedly. And so we do talk about that in that interview. But um, but you think the other, the guitar case collection is the one that is more thematically connected? Well, I think thematically, Last Projector, I think you're right about that. As far as the voice, um, even though Head Cleaner's third person attached, depending on what chapter you're in, uh, guitar case is first person, but it's kind of a similar similar guy. And it's um, if you're into Pittsburgh or uh, it's essentially a diary of living in Pittsburgh and Louisville at the time. Um, mm. And it's and it's also a hybrid. I think it may be just because it was the last thing I wrote before this. So mm-hmm. it's um, there is some of that that crossover. But the last projectors, I think, is the obvious one because of the because um, of the movie connection and because it's it's a lot of book there's there's a at least three competing plots going on in there and you know if you don't like the one just look for a different look for the italics and read the one that's in italics instead they may (laughs) they may dovetail or they may not i don't know but it's a there's a lot there as far as movies and the history of movies and that's was um that's probably the one that i spent the most time on so probably the most proud of and uh there there was some this is a probably a weird segue but there's some reddit threads about whether or not it's based whether or not under the silver lake ripped it off there's some uh people that make that claim i not sure where i come down on that although there are a series of weird coincidences and a lot of plot over not so much plot overlap, but moments. Um, but I don't know. You know, it could be uh, it could be osmosis. It could be a reasonable, right. uh, you know, like-minded 
movie saturated weirdos might come up with a similar kind of thing. Mostly that it's not the movies as much as the dog stuff in that movie um, is very similar to the to the dog themes and the the subplot with the dog killer. That stuff uh, that stuff is probably the closest. But, but yeah, so um, so there's an unofficial movie version. So if you want to watch that one, you can go and watch. <laughs> You can go watch the unauthorized film version um, and you get double the, double the, double the blow. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, well, one of the things too about, um, well, I'm going to start segueing in, into head cleaner a little bit, but you mentioned writing about Louisville and Louisville is a very interesting city. It's very strange because it's in Kentucky, but it doesn't feel like it's entirely no. Kentucky. Um, sure. It's like a, it's a college town. That's it's kind of an oasis in in uh, in Kentucky. It's like a many college towns, but yeah, I think it's it's fair to say that what makes Louisville unique outside of the college town is also part of Louisville, more so than some college towns. Um, but it's absolutely unique. Did you live there at some point? No, I didn't. I'm from Bloomington, Indiana, so we were two hours north. But uh, my our connection was that. Um, our hardcore scenes were connected. Um, we used to go to a lot of endpoint shows in Louisville, oh. right? And um, in the '90s, and uh, which, of course, Duncan Barlow is a writer who's been on this podcast. Duncan okay. and I have been friends for like 30 years. Uh, before either one of us were writing, we knew each other through punk rock, and and it's interesting because one of the earliest Midwestern punk rock bands came out, Squirrel Bait. Um, came out of Louisville. Louisville's always had an active music scene. And since I lived two hours north of there, we used to go to shows there a lot. And we used to bring Louisville bands to play in Indiana. So that I guess that's my weird I I my connection to Louisville is, you know, also like Bardstown Road and oh yeah. And, uh Ear Ecstasy is a record store I would drive two hours save up money and plan like i'm gonna go to your ecstasy and because they're gonna have music i can't get in my town right that's, that's absolutely what i did i was there when that went under i was very excited to find your ecstasy and then they went out of business while i was still living there um that's yeah that's I, a crazy good record store and it was great yeah I, very I found good the uh the um the spinoff band of uh one of those guys from the bad seeds uh i'm blanking on the name of it but it was like uh, Kid Congo Powers and the something Pink Monkey Birds, <laughs> something like that. It's an amazing album. I somebody had told me about it. They said you you're really in the Nick Cave, like every young man, <laughs> Gen X and young man. You love Nick Cave. You should check out Kid Congo Powers, which who was in the band went on to be in the Cramps for a minute, and then did his own thing. And I said it sounds like nothing I'd listen to, but I picked it up and. Um, yeah, I, it's it was a huge find, and I'd only ever seen it on the shelf at Ear Ecstasy, so that was um, I was ex very excited to go there whenever I got a chance. And then one day they were gone, like e even pre-pandemic, they they didn't survive just the the end of of media. Uh, well, if people, I know this is like a weird deep dive thing, but uh, if people are interested in, I learned a lot about the music scene in Louisville. I had uh, Rob Pennington on, who's the vocalist of Endpoint and By the Grace of God, which is one of the biggest hardcore bands mm -hmm. to come out of 
and he's been a punk rocker in Louisville since the early 80s. And he and I went really deep on this podcast. I'm not sure which episode it is, but we went really deep into He taught me a lot about Louisville's music history. And it was very fascinating because the one-to-one of how these bands came along, you know, uh, was was very fascinating. So I find Louisville to be a very interesting city. So you perked my interest. By no, very interesting. Guitar yeah. Case has Bardstown Road action in it. So if you're like Bardstown Road, there's plenty yeah. of that. Plenty yeah. of that guitar case. That's I what, we actually we live behind it. We live right off Bardstown Road. If you if you can picture it, there was a McDonald's on there that was the the least hip spot of Bardstown Road had a McDonald's. We lived right behind it. <laughs> and uh I remember distinctly when we first got there, we had uh we were getting a new washing machine in our upstairs apartment, and somebody came to buy the old one, and uh he showed up armed. This guy, there's like a young guy, he comes in and he says, when I saw where your address was, I thought I'd better show up packing. I'm like, really? <laughs> you mean you're, you're a mile away from the college. Did you need to, you, did you not think you'd survive the, the trip to buy this washer? And he shows me his gun. He's like, yeah, I just in case. And I'm thinking, were you scared that I was, this was my long con was to pretend like I was selling a washing machine to get you in here. And then I ended up having to help him carry it down the steps, even though the ad specifically said, bring somebody to carry it. I'm not carrying this thing down the steps. And he says, hey, man, can you just help me get this down the stairs? So it's it's just fascinating that there are some locals around Louisville who think that Bardstown Road is the scariest place that they've ever been, where they had to come heavily armed. Um, Well, there's sort of that towny college clash that you see anywhere right yeah we used to always uh i remember when we drive to louisville always bring our skateboards so we could skate around the area like we'd pack like jam them in the car and we'd, we'd always plan time to skate around louisville before shows started so awesome. um it, i have i have fond memories of louisville and uh most of the kids that i know that are kids they're all adults or old people now uh, but a lot of the friends we made in Louisville were all like really, really great people. And uh, on that note, I recommend um, Duncan Barlow's book. Uh, the City Awake is one of my favorites of his. Okay. And um, he's a great writer that uh, came out of that. And he teaches in an MFA program now. So, hmm. um, but uh, in South Dakota. So um, anyways, so on to head cleaner. Let's Let's get into this book because we could nerd out about Louisville for a long time, I'm sure. So head cleaner, um, obviously, there's been a resurgence lately of a little interest in um, in uh, VHSs, and partially, I think, because of Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino's podcast, their video archives podcast, mm-hmm. and um, you know the fact that they're like um, actively um, they're uh, they're they're kind of actively promoting the idea that VHS is their their chosen thing but they're also quentin like had his whole video store moved he bought the video store and moved it into his basement basically so he has not everyone can do that obviously right he has the resources but i like that he's talking about vhs as a medium because one of the things they do on that podcast sometimes is tell stories about running the video store and there's a very unique experience that young people today know nothing about which is um 
you know, what it meant to like the culture that was around a video store. Like, well, to probably, make, yeah, go ahead. just to jump in real quick, to they, they will never know what it's like the pressure to make a choice, to make a choice of a film, to commit to it. And then that's right. Your, and that's the one movie you're going to have for about 24 to 48 hours just because you, you're not going to not watch it because you paid for it. You got to bring it back in a day or two, depending. Yeah. So just the pressure of going in and selecting a single film, taking it home with you like a fucking dog from the pound. And you're like, and this, and this is our entertainment for the evening. Like that is, uh, that is something where everything is too many choices. That's why you, there's memes about people just, their entertainment is endlessly cycling through menus, looking at all the options. There's right. You don't have to make that choice, but anyway, yeah, that. Well, and I like to walk around the video store for a long time. Sure. You know, That's the, and that might be the version of cycling through the menu is walking yeah. around the aisles. And so one of the things that happened is you'd see the same video box a couple times mm -hmm. and maybe you didn't get it, but you built up in your head like what you thought that movie was going to be <laughs> like all the times you were there. Now, I recently yeah. told this story online and it's obviously inspired by reading your book. But there was this movie called Defcon 5 that had this amazing poster, right? Oh, yeah. Skeleton Astronaut, yeah. Yeah, Skeleton Astronaut. And they didn't have it at my video store that we rented from. But for us, there was a grocery store in Indiana called Marsh. And the Marsh on the south side of Bloomington, which wasn't even our primary grocery store, is one we just went to every once in a while. They had a little video rental section. And every time I would, we'd go to Marsh because I didn't want to spend time following my mom around looking for food. Mm -hmm. I would wander their video section. And I kept seeing this DEFCON 5 and it looked so fucking cool. I think it's four, but you're- Four, I, whatever, I'm you. five, I'm whatever. with you. <laughs> that just shows how you wanted it to be a little bit better. DEFCON right. 5 absolutely is a better title. <laughs> the DEFCON 4 was this movie that I saw forever. And so eventually we had to get membership at Marsh just so I could rent this movie to yeah. get the video membership and rented it and took it home. And it fucking sucked. I think. But I tried to convince and, myself. I will, I'm not going to defend DEFCON 4, but maybe just a tad where like, should something be punished because it had a great artist? You know what I mean? Like if somebody was, right. I think that the, whoever made that art was told a very loose version of what that movie's about that all the missile uh, satellite stuff is is just sort of a bookend to it where it's 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 almost immediately just a sort of what is it like a mad max knockoff it's just sort of people in running around in rags yeah uh, fighting some fighting the mutants it's just a cheap sort of uh survival movie um but yeah that your experience is I think consistent with everyone who rented DEFCON 4 and thought that you were getting something that I think there is a juxtaposition between skeleton and astronaut and the missiles. And right, it was right around the nuclear scare. Right. So to, you know, we had the day after and we had threads. So you had the serious version of this. This is what you should be afraid of, but to take it fully into the genre and make a horror movie with the nuclear scare there was something about that box. I mean, you're not, there's nothing crazy about thinking. No, there's like, the I, once I posted that, like six people said, like, that happened to me exactly. Yeah, it, it promised a lot. It didn't deliver. 
My, so, so here's the thing, Hollywood, if you're out there, I'm willing to write DEFCON 5, right? <laughs> 5 and match that match that poster. Inspired should, by that poster. I'll I don't know what kind of if you have the technology, you should put the poster up at this moment when you finish this to yeah. show what what you promise, what you'd promise. I had that experience with Deathstalker. I don't know if you've seen the cover for that. It shows sort of yeah. a there's a giant with sort of a pig's head and a big flail or a big mace in his hand, and he's sort of threatening um, some scantily clad women. Um, yeah, none of that shit. There is a, somebody with a pig's head in it, but it certainly doesn't look like that um, that uh, that very like heavy metal magazine cover that it had, and that was a disappointment. And recently, Galaxy of Terror that. Um, that has that cover with some sort of worm, some sort of worm gargoyle creature swooping in on a on the woman's like, oh no. Um, there that is the most interesting sequence in it. But again, another Roger Corman kind of knockoff. I think that's the consistent thing that's happening with all three of these with these second movies. unit director James Cameron, by the that's way. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And you can tell because it's a dry run for aliens. But yeah, yeah. the um all three of these movies, amazing cover art roger corman-esque terribleness so i don't know if you get burned over and over by that uh it's not maybe it's not as much of a betrayal the younger that you you get betrayed because that was a common thing is when you made the choice we were just talking about you pick that movie you pick defcon 4 and go home with it maybe by the time you spent if you spend more time with it do you convince yourself you didn't waste your time did you convince yourself okay Work, I'm committed to this movie for the next 24 hours. Maybe you're not. A, maybe you're a little more forgiving. You pulled it up fairly recently to watch it, and you don't have to do that to yourself anymore. You could yeah. immediately bail out of it, but maybe that's why you thought, ah, what is this? I don't have to watch this crap. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to psychoanalyze the people that took home DefCon Four, and maybe get, forgave it enough to make it a semi cult hit. I don't know. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is, there's all kinds of different things like that with video store store culture that when you're dependent on the video store for your entertainment and you're going to make the choice there's also the movies that the particular people that worked in the store champion there's ones that maybe they had a display or whatever mm -hmm. the ones that you just built up in your head this idea you know of what what you're going to do balanced with like you you know at the time for 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 us in indiana it was like too like a big thing growing up in indiana was that we had a horror host sammy terry that would show yeah. horror movies and sometimes it was like it was like a big deal to find the movie that you watched on sammy right and say like oh i'm gonna get to see this one uncut or without commercials without the guy talking to the spider on a string before the, before <laughs> the movie not that there's anything i mean i love sammy terry and and Sammy Terry is beloved to all of us from Indiana at our age. Um, that's how I saw Phantasm for the first time. Hammer horror movies were were mm. through Sammy Terry. But a lot of it too was um, it, if you missed an, a, a movie on Sammy Terry, and now I used to tape them all in case I fell asleep because it was Friday night and it was school night, I was tired. And that's how I ended up with all these amazing double features because they had Black Belt Theater on afterwards. Hmm. and um that inspired my novel hunting the moon tribe which is chinese vampires 
Um, and it was all because of that Sammy Terry double feature where I had I had all these double features of Dracula's Risen from the Grave and the Chinese Super Ninjas. Were those and, those vampire those hopping vampires? Are those which uh, well, I had some hopping vampires, but not all my vampires were hopping. But nonetheless, <laughs> you know, that was where that came together. But I'm seeing with your novel, like you, it seems like with Head Cleaner, you're really trying to just explore that um, the VHS world. And even though the last blockbuster technically was in Bend, Oregon, you kind of put this in an amorphous, surreal yeah. place, right? Right. It's We're, not really a block. It's it's like a Hollywood video showcase video slash whatever slash whatever. Yeah. But yeah, the it's the idea of them buying up all the old tapes to keep their to keep that business limping along. Um yeah. is it's there there's like a doom over it. And that's from I worked at many video stores back in just out of high school and then when I spent my short 12 years in undergrad limping my way through an undergraduate degree i had a lot of jobs in retail and video stores and so the the experience of you know like you were just saying with the the cover art on defcon 4 there is something to be said about looking at thousands of examples of genre artwork all day you know and, and getting right. sort of enamored with with that the old media um, and so that there is a lot of affection for those days of renting movies from a dying video store. Uh, the The idea of a last blockbuster is not that far removed from the idea of the last projector. You know, there's a reason for all these lasts. Mm -hmm. It felt like the end and, you know, it felt like hanging on to something. And, um, you know, there is there is something nostalgic about it, but also there's an attempt to punish those characters for relying too much on this nostalgia and for their own like obsessions with micromanaging their memories to right. where they can start, they can start messing with, if they had the ability to get what they want, which is some control over a future that's not going to happen. The future's their future is doomed as far as this culture, but if they're given the power to do it, you see what happens to them almost immediately is that um, it's, it's nothing that they should be doing because it's, it puts them, they keep going backwards and they keep their, their looping because they've opted to stay in this no future zone, an obsession with dead media. Uh, you can make some movies a little bit better if you had the power to change their endings, but you also, you've become like a, a victim of your own memories and, um, yeah, so it's both the same thing, like I said earlier, about complaining about movies that you love. It's also complaining about a culture that um, is nostalgia-soaked to to a fault. And, and that's kind of Eva's role, I think, a little bit, is that yeah. she over-romanticizes it. And that's why in the back cover description she's called idealistic, is that she kind of takes that role. And then Jerry is the cinephile, who's like the know-it-all about cinema right and he's the one that yeah. see the one that puts on a black sunday uh um yeah store it, <laughs> and then uh, of course i'm trying to make i'm trying to make black sunday happen <laughs> yeah yeah well and and uh you know not the mario black baba Sundays but there's already a black sunday that people love but they don't the frankenheimer black sunday not so much yeah 
Well, and so what's funny too is that, um, well, and I know this too, because like my latest book um, or the one that's coming out this summer, The Last Night to Kill Nazis. Um, There's a last, another last in there, huh? Yeah, I know. Well, it is. It's The Last Night. Yeah. And The Last Night to Kill Nazis for in many ways, like if I'm realistic, like about marketing it, I have to compare it to Inglorious Bastards because that's what people know. But to me, it's like Where Eagles Dare. And so, so it's funny because like, sometimes when you know these older movies, you're like, and, and so I felt for um, uh, Jerry in this, like wanting everyone to, to love and care about Black Sunday, uh, because I feel that way about Where Eagles Dare. I'm trying to tell people like, oh, no, 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 no. you want to love Where Eagles Dare or Guns <laughs> of Navarone, but you know, people don't know about it. And so like, I kind of, I related to his like love of Black Sunday and like wanting to uh, have it create this vibe in the store, which was funny. And yeah. um, so one of the things I want to say about Head Cleaner before we get into spoilers is um, that this book um, is very high, con- high concept and has some great sci-fi horror things going on. But it's also very funny because you're getting a chance to kind of um, take some of that... Um, you know, meta commentary that you've been doing over the years and kind of spin it into the book. Um, my favorite scene being the uh, Panera, Pantera um, <laughs> comparison scene, uh, which I quoted in my review. Uh, that was the hardest I laughed in the in the book. Um, uh, yeah, the, the fact that the, the guy is, uh, the fact that Randy is obsessed with Pantera is one of those... Um, inconsistencies that sounds very realistic to me like you think that when you that guy's profile doesn't feel like why would he be into pantera but it i think it makes total sense when you when you talk to people that you know they have that one that one quality that doesn't quite fit until you see it in action and with randy he's doing the i don't know well i'll wait for the spoiler but randy's doing the the mouth of the over the microphone thing which is sort of a setup for something later, but um, yeah. yeah, the uh, the Pantera. Well, no, no, and I, you know, in a weird way, I related to it because uh, <laughs> I lived in a house um, full of vegan strange kids around '99, and we had all these long-running jokes about Pantera. And <laughs> they're like, an easy, tar- they're an easy target, that's for sure. Yeah, and we had like um, we had a Vinnie Paul shrine in our house with all these pictures <laughs> of Vinnie Paul like hung on the wall. Well, have you seen? Uh, uh, have you seen the? There's like a a video or a video of um, where somebody's cut together all the Paul Stanley idiotic stage banter, where he's he's like, "Do you like alcohol? Welcome to." It's essentially Doctor Roxo from the Metalocalypse cartoon. So right. Paul Stanley was notorious for just having the dumbest between song stage banter, and somebody made a video that put it all together. Um, but as the, I think one of the characters in Head Cleaner points out, they, they've got nothing on Pantera when it comes to that stage banter. If you listen to the 100 and what is it, 101 live proof or whatever the hell it's called. Yeah. Uh, he just his, he, he seems to have like a, have a chip on his shoulder about people buying the album. I would highly recommend listening to that live album with, with him saying yeah. stuff like, I see a lot of people out here who, who are listening to something they shouldn't be listening to. You got to listen to this in your car. And the next song is called Becoming. And you're just like, yeah. wait, what, what was that? Did people, 
follow that. So the the stage banter of Pantera, I think, is better than the songs. <laughs> yeah, uh, they they are an easy target. Um, uh, but uh, I really appreciated that part of the book. So 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 a lot of the commentary is also about video culture and movies and like so obviously um a lot of your time in the video store working in the video stores bleeds onto the page oh yeah which anybody who's done that like they know i mean like you listen to roger and roger avery and quentin tarantino's podcast they still know the section headers where everything was filed like Mm -hmm. you hear them talk about it and and so in the same way i think that comes through in this book there's a lot of like this novel wouldn't exist if you hadn't worked in a video store, for example, right? Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say. And they had a much better control over their world. As they had a good video store. I think right. that there's, there's something, when you're in the trenches of retail for half your life, as many Gen Xers were, um, especially if, if you're in a video store that's a blockbuster, which was which was the man, right? The blockbuster wasn't the good one. Family yeah. video wasn't the good one. The showcase video that I worked at connected to a convenience store was not where you wanted to be. It wasn't one of the hip ones, especially in Northwest Ohio. There was no, there was no video archives. So you had a limited control over your environment, but you could find, you could find the gem, you know, the, the diamonds in the rough, and you could point them out in vain to, to your to your customers. You know, you could say, do you really want to? do you want to watch Top Gun again? Or you could watch, I don't know, Johnny Handsome just came in and it's it's a little different. And they're like, okay. And then they come back and say, well, this sucked. <laughs> and and you're, you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm doing the, I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm just trying to get some good <laughs> movies into the hands of these volunteer firemen who are, who don't want to talk to me at all. Um, so yeah, the, the struggle behind that counter I think hopefully shows up on the page because um, I think about it a lot. I think about it more than I probably should. Those days, <laughs> right. those days of being behind a counter with other stuck behind in the trenches with other people dealing with a populace with an art form that you're trying to convince them to go one way or the other. And it's hopeless. You know, it's, I, I was the annoying customer that used to always like when I was waiting in line would butt in and say like, you should, you should get this or mm-hmm. you should get that. Um, so whereas I never actually worked in the store, I, I definitely like, I I know there have been times where I've convinced somebody to go back in and run something else, but, um, very specifically all the time, like, you know, pointing people to the wider canon, for example, of like, or somebody's up there and has seen Halloween a bunch of times and say, well, have you seen any other John Carpenter movies? Right. Right. Like, sure like you should see prince of darkness you really should um and then uh um you know and and, and they're they're you know I, I think that's a part of the experience that is obviously inspiring is this so the story itself before we get into full full blown spoilers spoilers that people should know is that there um there is almost a, a mystical vcr in this this book that kind of rewrites the multiverse um by with rewinding and pausing and some things and and i know that sounds like super weird but in the context of how you uh, unveiled it in the narrative flow um they're they're trying to seek out a a vcr that had been rented and had gotten magical late fees right 
Yeah, if you remember, I don't know if you remember that there was one of those there was articles going around about somebody had a, v, a tape or a they rented a movie twenty years ago and it says late fee up to five thousand dollars and so it was one of those viral articles. Yeah, um, not that they probably could get anybody to pay anything but the price of the film, but it was one of those viral articles that I thought was interesting. And so this is a play on that that. They, they are aware of that article and the, and the characters in this are thinking, well, we should do that too. Well, let's look at our late list. Who's the worst on it? And there was somebody who rented years ago a VCR and a stack of tapes. And so because the one character is sort of trying to impress the other one and they go out to look for this VCR, which it turns out the stack of tapes, many of them, if I remember correctly, <laughs> I haven't read it in a while, Many of the, these tapes contain real footage, and if this VCR can change the footage or change the ending of films wherever you pause it and stretch the tape, then if you could change the re the real footage, then you might change things that are happening in, in reality, depending on the film. But the mostly it's about going to get a VCR back, which they asked me to do when I started working at Family Video. Uh, honestly, they I, I couldn't believe that this was real. They said. So once a week, you're going to get in the car with the assistant manager and you're going to go get our games back, our Super Nintendo games from people that rented them. And I, I you were like believe, a, the video repo, man. I couldn't believe it because it just like, can you imagine doing that today, knocking on someone's door? I mean, it would be such a dangerous thing to do it. And just to, anyway, they sent me to get I did it once. And we did get a Super Nintendo back and a stack of games. And it went fairly smoothly. We went to the door. And some uh, young guy comes up. And he's like, what? I said, uh, I, we can see the, the Super Nintendo back there. That's ours. Uh, you know, well, we're not going to call the cops or anything, but you, you know, we rented it a month ago. Can we just have it back? And he's like, okay. And gives it back to us. And we get back in the car and I'm, I'm just like, heart beating. said, I'm never going to do this again. I can't believe you. You, why would anybody do this? Are we getting extra? Are we getting hazard pay for this? So in the, in the book, the idea is what what would happen if that was the nightmare that I imagined would, was going to happen? What if it happened? What if you're in the house? What if there's something going on upstairs? What, you know, all the what ifs. Uh, so it was fun to play with that because it was a really disturbing memory from from my video store days. Right. Um, so this is a five star book for me. Um, and I'm not just saying that because you're Faces I appreciate that. Thanks. Um, I I really loved it. Um, I laughed a lot. I thought it was weird. It made my head go a couple different directions. Um, <laughs> for my dickheads out there, I would say um, the thing that is most PKD about it um, is the attention to the changes and little details. Phil loved um Oh yeah. Stories um, where the universe was just slightly different. Um, and that's one of the things that kind of goes on here, but we'll talk about that in spoilers. Um, so I'm not the 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 language and stuff is a little bit more verbose than than most PKD, but uh, people do always want to know. Uh, if I'm going to make this a dick-like suggestion and I'm milling that as a dick-like suggestion for the Dickheads podcast because uh, <laughs> I do think that it has enough 
uh, PKD territory. So, and I know some people would want to know what I think on that that regard. As the um, now five years uh, underwater dickhead that I am. Um, so, on that note, um, we're going to go to spoilers here in a little bit. Is there anything else you want to say to people before we tell people to pause and go read the book? No, and if they pause, I mean that's dangerous. That's a dangerous move. Pausing anything could change. That's a destructive, destructive move. Don't pause. Don't ever pause anything. Or you could just close out your your podcast app and then come back to it, so you don't have to actually push the pause button. No, so. the, the universe the universe recognizes loopholes like that and would punish you accordingly. <laughs> right. That's just, a, that's just a way to pause without pausing. At least right. have the courage to pause. Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, I recommend Head Cleaner. Um, you can get it uh, most uh, book-worthy places. I recommend Yeah, there's a little more distribution with this one than my last book. I think it's shown up some places. Um, people are sending me some pictures, which is, which is fun. But you should be able to get it anywhere. Should be able to get it anywhere. Um, uh, you know, we always, I always recommend uh, bookshop.org or ordering through Mysterious Galaxies, who I'm repping, um, who's our local bookstore here. And, um, and I want them to get uh, more indie stuff. So uh, it's always good to go through them. So I always recommend that. So yeah, um, we're going to pause and take a break here and then we're going to do spoilers. Okay, we're back. Um, of course, it was about a second or nanosecond for the folks out there listening. But for us, we took a, a little pee break. Um, and now we're in spoilers. Um, so if you're listening at this point, either you don't give a shit about um, spoilers or you've already read Head Cleaner. Um, and again, I recommend reading it and then, then we'll talk about it. So the first thing first that I want to I want to get into some parts of the book that that I really, really um, liked. And we already talked about, there's a part where one of your characters says, everybody goes back in time to kill Hitler, but I totally buy a shit ton of Netflix stocks. Well, maybe maybe not anymore. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, um, but you this is one of the scenes where you talk about how the kids don't know how, how they have it. But... Um, but a lot of, um, you know, what's going on in this book is, um, you know, and part three is called War Warthog Day. So in, in, in a sense that you're you're kind of playing with the whole like Groundhog's Day thing of like um, in this part of the book. Do you want to talk about like where the structure of this book came from? Because uh, I think that. Because what, what I like to do in spoilers is I like to think of this as like where we talk to other writers about, you know, and get into nitty gritty of, of, of how the book was constructed. You sure. Know? Yeah, this one, um, it originally was a short story. Um, the first, I would say the maybe like the first 20 pages was originally a short story and it was just kind of fleshing out the what if you went to go retrieve a vcr and late movies and you found something horrible at the house and um it was a submission for uh perpetual motion machines lost films anthology oh that and makes sense yeah so yeah it was sort of here's a tape somebody's recording their own death 
as a way for immortality. So it sort of it fit their theme. I figured um, Max would like it. And uh, he did. He liked it. And then uh, I, was, I guess this is kind of obnoxious as a if you get a story accepted, do you heavily rewrite it? You probably shouldn't do that. But instead, I started really thinking about that story and it turned into a novella. And I messaged Max and said, so this this story is getting pretty big. I you know I went in to look for typos, and I have all sorts of ideas of where this is going. I'm like, do you do you want something that's twice as long? And he was like, God damn it, yes, send it to me, whatever. So I sent him the bigger one, um, which is essentially a novella at this point. And he put he put it at the very end of the book so it wouldn't break up the pace. And um, at that point, the story was it became the deaths of all these characters and whether if they were to record their own deaths, could they remain on a videotape forever and possibly survive it? So that's where that's was initially the entire story was the death of the three video store people being shot, but they are, one of them is recording it. So maybe they could survive it and sort of loop back around. Um, so then this is very spoiler heavy. I started thinking about um, what, would happen if this whole thing was told from the point of view of different characters their own impression of it would not only be different but also their own experience of it would be different because it goes into the theme of your memory of a film that could be different or flawed is not necessarily any less valid than anyone else's changed memory of a film so their memory of the experience if it's changed what if that means it's actually happening the way they experience it which means now there's three different versions of these events and then I started, this is where it really went nuts. I started thinking, is there a way to fake time travel in a believable way? Could I make this entire story seem like it was there was a time travel, time loop situation, multiverse situation? But what if it was all faked? So I, as an exercise, I tried to find a way to make it feasible to fake that sort of thing. And then at the end... It's like, did it really happen or didn't it happen? You can make your decision about whether it happened or not. But I think that there are enough possible um, answers to steer you, hopefully believably in the direction that they were being manipulated into thinking that this was happening when, when it wasn't. Of course, did they die? Were they drugged? There are a series of moments where they're, they're certainly gassed. Somebody puts a... Um, Eva, as a former addict, is sent into some sort of addiction loop. So, but it's some, I don't know. In my mind, it's kind of like, you know, planting evidence on O.J. Simpson. He's absolutely guilty, but the cops were corrupt. So you planted evidence on a guilty guy. So it's kind of like, that's this, what's going on with this book. I planted evidence that it didn't really happen, but come on, it did it, did it not have, could it not happen? So, so one of the things that's really interesting, this is the PKD, I think that it's very similar to PKD, which is the changing of the movies, right? right. So like PKD always like little changes where like, you know, doors change, you know, like you only knew you were in another universe because the door used to open out instead of opening in. Yeah. That was like a big deal. Right. And so for me one of the things that was really fascinating is how like they start cluing into this because like the the ending of movies starts changing and then well then we saw titanic but like how could that change because that was based yeah. on a real 
event did the real event change right and um how how did you like work this in and what was your thinking on doing this part of the book because i love that yeah thanks it was kind of like it was part of a meme that i had been seeing where uh, you might have seen this on twitter i think it was where it says fix a movie in one in one line or fix a movie in one word and so the characters start playing that game and it's foreshadowing for what they're going to do which is they're going to if you fix a movie in one word, you, can you change a movie in one scene? And if you change a movie in one scene, are you changing the world in one movie? So it, things escalated in that way. So it's, it started with the, the game they play, which is fix a movie in one line. And they, I think they're playing with the matrix becomes a conversation about how there are things that could have solved that. And um, so it turns into uh, an extension of that. And like you said, if, if the Titanic never sinks, um, so the Wikipedia ch uh, page changes, and if it's a real event, then if, if we're in a world where the Titanic never sank, the pebbles going out from the, you know, dropping the pebble in the water, minor changes start. It's not quite the butterfly effect, but it is within, right. within movies, especially when movies feed other movies. So you've got movies using scenes from other movies. The so, fist, and that's the comparison you made with Fistful of Dollars and... Um, yeah. And... Back to the Future 3 later in the book, right? Right, exactly. And yeah. same like, I don't know if you saw The Limey with Terrence Stamp. Yes. Uh, great film. And for flashbacks, that uh, Soderbergh did something amazing where he went back and found an old movie that Terrence Stamp had made when he was a young man, which was a gangster movie, Poor Cow. And it he put those sequences of him as a young man in this other film in his film as flashbacks, which that sort of meshing of memory and like i i just i started to imagine what if somebody saw that and had memories of the other film and it's like is this one feeding off this one or is this one feeding off this one and so yeah long story short going down the rabbit hole of changing films uh and therefore by proxy changing lives is uh is where it all starts spinning out right and that's where the warthog day the groundhog day thing Right. If I've said this to somebody the other day, if if you actually were in a Groundhog Day situation where you felt like you were repeating a day, if you started to look around and think this looks familiar, um, it would be it would be hellish. It wouldn't be. And there's some of that in the film Groundhog Day. And I guess in the original script, it was even darker. But um, it taking away that sort of uh, and if, if you could do that to somebody, if you could convince somebody that they were repeating a day which is what the book hints at is that somebody's trying to convince me by sending me these tapes, manipulating the imagery, manip manipulating text, manipulating the, there's like static pages that they're pretending to be websites to convince people that they're repeating a day. Could you get them to do something for you? Um, so all that stuff I think is terrifying. Uh, so that's why the, the flip from groundhog day to warthog day. And plus that's uh, Randy's chapter and Randy he's the one who has the biggest arc because he comes in as an asshole it's like how can you redeem this character he's this guy's terrible so it gives you something to do whereas jerry starts off they essentially start off as opposites and then i don't know if you remember they switch shirts that has their names on them and at the moment they switch shirts they've switched personalities they they're now randy is heading for some sort of relatability or some sort of sympathy and Jerry is heading for some sort of devastating comeuppance. I which, admit, I didn't, I did not notice that, but that's really cool. Yeah. 
done as not as Jerry deserve it. I don't know. I, I felt like he deserved it because he's the kind of person you get sick of. I don't know. I needed to punish somebody and it felt like Randy had uh was an easy was an easy out. Um so so in a lot of horror and genre work, you have like the thing that kind of pushes you know the fear button. And in this book, there's an actual fear button in the sense of pushing play and pause and and all those things. Now the, the idea was and in early in the book, it's easy to think of what they're dealing with is like a mystical multiverse editing VCR, right? Yeah. Is what it seems like they're dealing with. And you mentioned that there's some sleight of hand there. But yeah. can you talk to me about like what the power of the pause and the play button is in this book? I guess and sorry uh, for the bark. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it at first the idea is that if you pause a movie let's say there's a scene in a movie that you really like. So you keep pausing it. And you, this is from kids these days would not know the pain of the best scenes in films, having static lines going through them from being paused over and over again. So if you see us, uh, there's a particularly violent scene or if there's nudity or a great sequence on VHS, people would watch those scenes over and over. So you get those tapes back and they would have lines through them from where they were paused. Because by pausing the movie, you st you're starting to stretch it. You start it, it's sitting on the head, which is where you get the title, the head cleaner. You're sitting on the video head and you're stretching it ever so slightly. And that's why you get the lines. So the idea is that this particular VCR, um, if you pause it and then you and you rewind and play it again, it's it's stretched the tape, but it's also stretched reality. And it's made some sort of other option has happened. So if there's like, a, it's like a binary switch. So if there's something that happened, now you're going to get the opposite of it. If somebody died in that scene, now they live. If somebody um, survived, and now they die. So you find that because it happens at the most popular scenes, it drastically changes these films. And so through, throughout the, the book, the characters start to doubt their own memories of it. Kind of the Mandela effect is kind of shit on a little bit in the book. So the idea is that, well, I remember, you start to realize that they're saying, Wait, you're saying in this movie the Titanic sinks? So then you realize, wait, the characters think that the Titanic didn't sink? So now they're they're confused as well. Or did they are is it the butterfly effect where in their world the Titanic didn't sink, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, so in a nutshell, the you've stretched the tape slightly and you've changed the outcome of the film. So moving forward, if you've done, let's say you're watching JFK, which becomes a pivotal film in the book. JFK uses the actual Zapruder film. So if people keep pausing in the dialogue of the movie JFK, they're pausing and rewinding. He says, back and to the left, back and to the left. So now here you have an example of where the movie is commanding them to stop the stop their own film, back into the left, back into the left. So now they've made it, if it's the switch, so now he has JFK survived because the Zapruder film is being stretched? Um, and then the characters become obsessed with getting them their own deaths on tape so that they could can somebody could stretch the tape and bring them back um then they have they they tape their uh demise on the jfk tapes and hide them because they're terrible at alphabetizing um but that's essentially what the vcr is supposedly doing is stretch physically stretching tapes and it's revealed later that it, that vcr the vidstar top loader is the last of its kind the last one to come off the assembly line. 
um, which means it's hinting that everything that comes off the assembly line last has some sort of is given some sort of power over the material it has. So the last tape player does something. The last there's a hint that the last everything is in the, this one the basement at the end. Somebody's collecting the last everything, the collectors, which may or may not be the same person over and over again, is collecting the last device uh, because of the possibilities. Or are they? Or is it just an attempt? To, is it just a psychological experiment to see what people would do if they thought their lives were being repeated? Uh, but that's what the machine's supposed to be. Doing. I, I remember Josh Olson recently on his podcast mentioned that A History of Violence was the last movie made on VHS. Yeah, I, I just discovered that recently. I think I saw, I was looking it up on eBay and somebody was selling the History of Violence VHS tape. I was I had just seen the recent Cronenberg uh, Crimes of the Future. And I thought uh, I should really flesh out my, uh, flesh out, I should really flesh out my Cronenberg collection and uh, the VHS tape was like 150 bucks. I thought, what the fuck? Why? And the person said, be a part of history in the eBay description. I thought, oh, my God, what did I miss? And I Googled it and it said, sure enough, history of the violence, the last videotape to come off the assembly in North America. VHS is still being produced worldwide. I'm sure there's multiple versions of it. But in North America, that's the last of its kind. And uh, now I need to get one. Um which I don't think I'm at the time. I think I missed the boat on it, but I'm always on the lookout for it, at least for the past four visits to Rasputin's. I figure somebody's going to take one back and not know that they're dealing with history there. But um, but yeah, by the logic of this book, the, the history of violence would be infused with some sort of uh, powers because Speaking it's of Rasputin's. By the way, have you been to the Rasputin's and Rasputin's Rasputin in um, uh, Berkeley? Yes. The- yeah, there yeah. were two that there were two there, right? And then um now there's just the one. Um Rasputin's in Amoeba are like a block apart. Yeah, the Rasputin is in the location where Phil K. Deck worked at the last record store. It's the wow. the record store he worked at is where the Rasputin's is now. So that so this is the Rasputin's that's still there that has the basement. Yep. Yep. Wow. I mean, yeah, I he that. worked in that. He worked in that. In the record store that was in that building before Rasputin's. I wonder if there's any paraphernalia left over from the record store because there's a fiberglass cop that stands at the door and says, you know, don't steal shit. It's got to be some stuff left over from if it's the same. It certainly feels like an old record. It's drafty. It's got a lot of, you know, it's got a lot of records, too. So I wonder how much is left over from the stock that he used to work there. Isn't that Rasputin's is famous for just taking over old spaces? Isn't that their gimmick? Yeah. So in the first record store that he worked at, because he worked at two locations owned by the same guy, Herb Hollis, and they sold the first TVs at the one. What's the main strip of Berkeley? I'm brain farting the name of it. Um, um, uh, no, I'm Shattuck. Shattuck. Or starts with an S. Where is that the street that it's on? Yeah. Shatt- I think Shattuck is the main street of um, Berkeley, but I could be. Anyways, there. it's a Bank of America now where the first record store was and in the basement of that building is where Phil K. Dick lost his virginity as well. Um, yeah. stuff. Fascinating stuff. But anyways, <laughs> um, so talk about, uh, you just met, you mentioned Rasputin and I just, I figured talk, I'd, I'd talk uh, about stretching the tape. Yeah, exactly. Um, Telegraph so, road. Is it Telegraph road you're thinking of? In uh, Berkeley? Uh, Whatever the main strip of 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 um, maybe not the main strip of of Berkeley. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. So he lived a couple blocks from there with his mom in high school. And then it's funny because it was a big deal to him to move out from his mother's house in high school. And if you walk to the apartment where he first lived when he moved out, that was this big deal. It takes four minutes. And he was very excited. Like he thought he had moved away from his mom and really like got his independence. So it's like in Zodiac. It's like in Zodiac when Gyllenhaal points out with the salt shaker that all the murders took place within the same walking distance. Right. So, um, so Head Cleaner, um, you know, it kind of it's a weird book. So, in when you come to the end, like, you know, you were trying to go for this idea of. You know, well, what if it was all like a trick or or whatever? How do you feel about how the third act plays out? Like, um, I thought it was it was really good. Like, it kept me going through the end. But I got to tell you, like on a, on a like on an honest level, like, and I'm fine with this. I wasn't quite sure what to think about the end, about yeah. you know what was the the reality of it, which I'm a-okay with reading a book and speaking specifically it's a long time you know fan of bizarro surrealism and philip k dick i'm fine with that but yeah, i was gonna uh, say you're the, you're the you're the perfect forgiving audience for an open-ended ending and it's uh it does ask the the reader to to have to um to be okay with not a an easy answer but as far as the, I know I've noticed that there's been some frustration. This is a uh, this is a book that has gotten out of the bubble a little bit. As far as there's a writing scene that I've been involved in for for a few years here, and uh, this seems to have gotten a little bit outside of that. Where um, it's interesting to see what just the average reader that comes across it says, and it sounds like there's some frustration, uh, which is fun. There's a frustration with the repetition right before the that final reveal so uh, this is a spoiler but when when it comes to be like the third time that they end up in the same place that they're still in a basement now they're in a it's like a turducken right they're in a basement within a basement within a building where somebody has somebody rebuilt the video store within the base, basement of this building is like a simulation when it when it's revealed that they're back in the basement um it's kind of like the van in Inception that goes over the edge, but it's taking forever to get there. It sounds like there are some some people out there that that are like, ah, oh, you're tr let's get it going. Let's but for fans of this sort of thing, um, I think that the joy is not ever escaping it. I think that the hell of being stuck in the same place, especially when you're stuck with the people that you've grown to have these conflicts with. I think that that's the fun of it. Like, I don't, I don't know where else to go. It's, it is sort of an insular story where they, the act of repeat, not just repeating the day, but they keep ending up in, in a basement, um, at least in the last third. And I don't think that the there's patient. any accident that you spend a bunch of time talking about the rewinder, which is a, a technology that yeah. people like <laughs> don't think about now yeah. that, that you'd have this machine that you just shove in and rewind a tape. Right. And it was funny when, when and you mentioned that because we used to use, we had our, our own rewinder at home, right? And we were told no. that like, it saves the head on your VCR. Yes, it does. It doesn't stretch your tapes. <laughs> right. And so you use the rewinder to, and look, I, I had a Betamax, right? 
And um, when the family upgraded to VHS because we had to, the Betamax oh. went into my bedroom. <laughs> and like, because I had a bunch of sci-fi and Sammy Terry episodes and V and V the final battle on Betamax. And I, and you know, I wore that shit out, but that Betamax survived. Like we got it in like 1980 and I used it to, I know through at least 91 you know, so that thing went for the irony is the irony is that those rewinders are destructive, that they rewind so fast. Most of the better VCRs, when they get to the end of rewinding, they slow down. You can hear the motor slow down so it doesn't give it the jar at the end. Those these rewinders go bam and they'll snap your tape right off the reel. We had to fix we had rewinders at the video store just because we get a bunch of them back. They weren't rewound. So we're sticking them in rewinders, slapping them down as we're putting stuff away. And, you know, like every 20, 20th tape or so, we'd hear it go, bam, and pull it out, and it's it had pulled it off the tape. So the attempt to save your VCR with a rewinder destroyed more than a few tapes, um, which it turns out are worth so much more. VCR is 20 bucks now. Some of these tapes are going for insane prices. So that's well, here's the thing. Kind of funny. Uh, like anything else, you could buy the expensive rewinder that slowed down. So I know for example, Oh, did they have one? Yes, they did have one. It was wow. it was more expensive because we had one that would slow down. Like no, I, I think I had one that looked like a car. So yeah. they were more they wanted it to look neat rather than um save your tapes. Yeah, because it had a really I remember the sound. It, it you know, it'd start off like super fast and then like you know it was about to pop up like when it like a toaster. Yeah. yeah, when it slowed down. So so I don't know if I'm just like reading crazy things into it by like, but I I I thought the rewinder was a big hint in the book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then and, you can't uh, you can't overanalyze yeah. this one. <laughs> this one's impervious to overanalysis because <laughs> it's all whatever you think of it. That's I'm sure it's in there. I'm sure right. your theory's in there. Um, what's your um favorite like hidden part of it? That you put into it that you haven't seen anyone find yet um well as far as a a hook that i haven't seen i mean the idea of a magic vcr is a little corny as far as you know that's almost an adam sandler plot but the idea of fa of faking time travel to make somebody convinced that it's happening to them i have yet to see anyone do that so i'm proud of that plot point being being new as far as uh any sort of Easter eggs, if I, if that's what you're asking, um, there are a lot of uh, there's probably a little more Taco Bell symbolism than is any sane person would put into a book. The, the Taco Bell um, stuff, the shadow menu, the Mexi melts, all that stuff is uh, is an unironic love of Taco Bell, which I you know say that in california at your own peril where there's where there's really good uh authentic mexican food but as i was talking to somebody about recently it's not mexican food it's di it's different it's some sort of nostalgia food it's some sort of it's some sort of thing it's not just like you know the reality of the book is intangible Taco Bell is intangible. They had a whole article about how it's not even meat. It's just some protein fluff. So just the, the artificial nature and enjoyment of Taco Bell 
there are some Easter eggs regarding that and regarding the shadow menu and the shadow government. Um, there's also, I'm obsessed with people taking quote decompression showers in films. So I snuck one in there um, where there's no real opportunity to take a shower, but uh, I snuck that in there because I just love when people, and people send them to me now, they see so many of them. If you're watching anything these days, there'll be a shot of somebody with two hands on the wall, pondering whatever they've become. Um, and people just, shows and movies today just plow through that cliche like it's like it's anything that's not silly at this point. So I love that they exist still. iRobot has the best one of those, I think. Oh, really? See, what I didn't remember that. And I've seen iRobot at least three or four times. But he takes one in that? Yeah, the absolutely. Movie? He absolutely does. I would okay. say that the, the the fake time travel, it's not exactly the same, but um, it did remind me of, uh, of PKD's Time Out of Joint, which okay. um, which is been ripped off to become the Truman show. Uh, <laughs> the Truman show is very, you know, where sure. yeah, there's a and there's like, definitely his a whole existence was was that he was faked to be in the 50s when really they Absolutely. were just in the program a war in the 90s, right? Sure. I guess it, yeah M Knight's ripped he ripped that off with the village too. He ripped off that <laughs> yeah and um with time out of joint I I fit like I favorably um, suggested head cleaner to a friend whose favorite PKD novel is Time Out of oh, Joint. Awesome. And uh, saying that um, like not everyone's going to see the connection with Time Out of Joint, but you will. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I think that think that that's there. But anything sure. else like real uh, the the Taco Bell thing is there because I didn't there's, notice that at all. There's a lot of that. There's there's a lot of primer in there. Um, the I if people that are familiar with Primer, one of my absolute favorite films, I had to some of them I've I gave a shout out to in the in the acknowledgments. Like I had to credit Primer because the I at some point the characters to protect their existence start recording their conversations just in case like they're making a, an archive of their own lives. And that's um absolutely inspired by Primer when they go back in time just to I think it's eight hours back and they want to replicate their conversations so that everything happens exactly the same without any deviation. So they're listening to the conversations they just had and they're inserting the words that they already had. So that, that reference is in there. Um, and plus the existential terror of primer, the idea of you kind of, if you're going to, if time travel is feasible and if it can be done with this, and if it's this kind of analog version of it, you have to sort of, you have to earn it. Like in primer to go back eight hours, you have to sit in that box for eight hours. You don't just, you don't go blink and then you're there. You have to take in some, or if you want to go back a day, you have to sit, if you want to go back 24 hours, you got to sit in there eight hours and then disassemble the box and put it into another box and then go back another eight hours. And you have to go to, you have to eat in there and you have to wait it out and you come out delirious because of all the time you spent there. But that's how you have to earn those hours back. So in this book, there's that, the effort of a loop like that is, uh, you know, it's destructive. It's destructive to their relationships, to their personalities. It's destructive to their families. Um, although the only family we see is Eva's, but you see how the, uh, any, any repetition of a day 
is enough to destroy um, any, they become untethered in a way that is very much, uh, I think they're in primer. Um, you know, I wish that guy would make more movies. He only did two. And they're, I think those two were masterpieces. And um, so I think there's a shout outs to that. And uh, there's actually a, a show on YouTube called Welcome to the Basement, where um, they watch, uh, the gimmick is one guy has, is trying to get through a, all the movies he's never seen. He's missed a lot of pivotal films. And he brings in his friend who's may or may not have seen them before. And they talk about uh, the movie. They watch them together and then they talk about them in a vaguely MS3K kind of way. Like they riff as they watch them. And then he talks about them. In Welcome to the Basement, they talk about a uh, an immersion tank where they watch a movie five times in five nights and see if new things emerge. Um, and that's certainly an influence on on this book where you're seeing maybe five times the same situation and new things emerge. So I gave them a shout out in the, in the credits as well, in the, in the post credit sequence. Wait, do credits go up or do credits go down? <laughs> I think it depends. Well, they go backwards in seven. So I guess they come down in seven. Right. So I noticed they were backwards. Anyway, the credits have shout outs to Primer and Welcome to the Basement. So, um, sorry, the I've been trying to mute. Oh, I'm not over. even hearing. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's pretty high pitched over here. But, anyways, we're almost done. But uh, Head Cleaner is a great book. I really recommend it to, I mean, obviously, I would hope people here at this point have read it. Um, one a thing about my review of it is I, I tried not to get into these sci-fi things. I tried to like just do the setup, just talk about the setup and then talk about the parts that I liked. Yeah, I think it could, yeah, I think the funny. focusing on the sci-fi elements, I think kind of give it a, is kind of a disservice because it is about the the it is about a convert it's a conversational kind of book that those I don't want to say those things are window dressing, but the I think the strength of it is the banter and the video store culture and kind of the the experience of of arguing with people that are the people you work with if that makes any sense like it's it's very much grounded in workplace drama not necessarily grounded in right a, a high concept well, plot which it has but I might go back and add this to my review but it seems like the um, and I didn't think of this way when I was writing the review earlier today. Sorry, doggy. Um, I'm coming to you soon. Um, but the thing about it is, is that this this book feels like a slipstream, like like those conversations at the video stores opens up like a hole in the universe, and yeah. the people involved in this conversation are pulled into it. Is basically sure. the idea. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, another book recommendation recommendation I'd like to give is uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Stuart Onan. Um, I think a Pittsburgh author wrote The Last Night at the Lobster, and it's a very slim little novel, probably considered a novella. But The Last Night at the Lobster is a red lobster is going out of business. They're going to be open one more night, and everything that happens there that night is is what the book is about. Relationships are being severed. There's other relationships are being formed. The manager's trying to keep it all together. It's a very snowy night in Pittsburgh. 
And um, it was a huge influence. It's not necessarily a very um, eventful book, but if you if you're from that generation of retail service workers, video store workers, and you know what it's like to be there those nights, again in the trenches, that book I think has got that vibe. And um, and I hope that's what I try to do with Head Cleaner is the vibe of being stuck at work, and being and if work happens to be a multiverse time loop. It's also that sort of work being stuck to with your coworkers is something I both miss and uh, and it's sort of a waking nightmare whenever I think about retail for decades. But it's it's a weird nostalgia. It's a nostalgia for terrible times, you know, in the workplace. All right, David, uh, tell the folks uh, where they can find you and your books. Um, and uh, uh, let me know if there's anything else you want to add here at the end. Sure. Uh, yeah, I guess I have a very outdated website that's under davidjameskeaton.com, but it does have links to all the books, but maybe the last two. It's it's both it's outdated as in it's ancient, and also I haven't updated it. So you'd probably just go to Twitter. I guess uh, is Twitter still exist? Um, Spider Frogged is what I am on Twitter. Um, not much of a web presence these days, but uh, absolutely find uh, find the book anywhere you find books. You should be able to find it, and it should lead you to the other books. You know, Hansel and Gretel style. Uh, that's all I. I guess that's all I would say. <laughs> well, and I hope to. Um get this book out there to more uh, sci-fi readers. Cause I think that's, that's one of the things that I, you know, I think sci-fi readers might, it, it, the horror crowd might know more, a little bit more of your work, but I think this is one that people who like, um, we like the weird uh, new wave sci-fi. of the, Yeah. I think a scanner darkly, the, the vibe of a scanner darkly, if not the plot, I think is very close. The sort of the way those guys are stuck together, arguing about how many gears a bike has. I think that is a very similar vibe to this book. Um, but yeah, I think you're a good audience for it. You, you're from the, are you right? I, I am target audience. I know. This oh one. yeah. I know target audience is a uh, is, is a bad is a term we're told not to use anymore. And, mar and oh, well, you don't want a targeted audience. You want an we'll audience, say, right? We'll just say li like minded, right? Um, yeah. And on that note, I have a doggy to feed who's letting me know that. Um, but uh, I really enjoyed our conversation, David. And uh, yeah, this was fun. It was good. Nice to meet you for real. For yeah, for real. This being yeah. real. I'll, I got to remember to uh, um, invite you to some uh, when I do some panels, because I'm sure there's some that you would do uh, really great on. Um, uh, like the last series that we did was like 30s sci-fi. Um, so <laughs> if your person is new to this podcast, came looking for that guy. Um, <laughs> I do cover all kinds of genre stuff and I love the history of science fiction. And so I got a whole series on 30s science fiction that was kind of recent that people should check out. So um, thank you, Mr. Keaton. Uh, it was great having you on. Yeah. Um, I'll, uh, I have a suggestion for you off air, but uh, well, well, it was great Alrighty. having you on. Uh, anything else Thanks you want to say? No, I think that's good. We don't want to get it. We don't make people think they're stuck in a, stuck in a time loop here. Yeah. <laughs> we right, should just, you should do that. You should, 
you should make the podcast just start over without it telling anybody about it <laughs> see how long they can endure it yeah well we'll see all right well it's good talking to you um all righty all right thanks Thank everybody you.